You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Well, I hope you've got your Bibles there. Uh, you'll need them tonight. And uh, there used to be a quiz show on TV not so long ago where the uh, opening line was, I really want to see those fingers because you need to be uh, moving back and forth through the book of Acts uh, with me tonight. So I hope you have your Bible there. Make sure you've got it open. You'll be completely lost without it. So please make sure you follow with me where we are, which chapters we're in, and so on this evening. Because we're going to do a bit of an overview of this whole idea of the church that Jesus built, especially in relation to persecution tonight. In his book, Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't, by Stephen McAlpine, and I thoroughly recommend this, especially to those who are parents of teenagers at the minute, an absolutely superb book that you shouldn't be without. Stephen McAlpine writes, you mean I'm the bad guy? How did that happen? You see, it's not easy to be the baddie. It's particularly disconcerting when you didn't used to be, but then you suddenly realize that's how everyone else sees you. And so it is that line from the 1993 film Falling Down that has lodged itself in the front of my mind in the last couple of years. That film, some of you might know it, depicts Michael Douglas as William Foster, who starts his day as your average law-abiding citizen, but ends it on the wrong side of the law, and it comes as a complete surprise to him. He has no idea how it happened, and he's no idea how to deal with it. Most of us don't have much in common with William Foster. I mean, I'm sure you haven't threatened anyone with a rocket launcher recently or tried to take out a police officer. That makes a good movie. But I am guessing, in fact, I'm 100% sure, that there'll be some people sitting in Union Road or watching tonight who have had at least one conversation with someone, whether it be a non-Christian neighbor or a colleague or a friend at school, that didn't go well. As they expressed anger over your small-minded Christian views, or you've read or at least watched a piece in the media that just seemed to take pot shots at biblical ethics, left, right, and center. Maybe even it's a schoolmate who has laughed at the fact you believe that there is even a God. And you've thought to yourself, you mean, we're the bad guys? How did that happen? Because if you haven't already woken up to it, in the eyes of society now, the Christians are the bad guys. The church is the problem. We are very dangerous. And it has happened so quickly that it has taken many people who've lived in their little Christianized bubbles in Northern Ireland for so long by surprise. We are the bad guys in society. Let me give you a very personal example. No matter what your view of local politics, Earlier last week, I felt prompted to respond to some very unfair comments, not regarding as politics, but regarding as Christian beliefs in relation to Edwin Poots. The comments attacked not as political leaning, but as Christian faith. And so on Facebook, it made reference to the fact that I struggled to see, and I wrote this in reply, I struggled to see how so-called liberally minded people in the media who seek to promote tolerance and be inclusive couldn't find it in themselves to accept or indeed include a different point of view. To which I received, and I can only give you three because all the rest uh, included bad language. The first one was, 
all opinions aren't of equal value now, Dave. All opinions aren't of equal value now, Dave. Interesting, isn't it? All opinions are not of equal value. If you're a Christian, your idea is not of value. You're a dinosaur, Dave Leach. Oh, yes, you can't be, because you obviously don't believe in them. Then someone else wrote, this isn't about belief. This is about ignorance, delusion, and denial. People like this and people like you shouldn't hold office. Just for the record, I do believe in dinosaurs, but that's beside the point. You see, in trying to have an open debate, the playing field out there is not level anymore. Christians are portrayed as those who want to destroy people's happiness and pop everyone's bubble, whether it be in school or work in university. If you haven't discovered it yet, you will very quickly discover it. Sadly, some Christians come across like that and are known for what they condemn rather than what they live for. And we've got to be careful about that as well, because I know too many Christians who are known for what they're against, but we don't know what they're for. We're the bad guys now, and that's okay. And we have to get used to it, but we're experiencing a backlash after a remarkable period of religious tolerance for nearly 1,500 years in Ireland. We've had it so, so good for so, so long. And suddenly we're beginning to get just a tiny trickle down of what the rest of the world have been experiencing for those 1,500 years. Now we're getting it. But we aren't the first Christians to have experienced this, and we're not going to be the last. Because from the gathering of the first disciples to the birth of the church at Pentecost, believers have always been portrayed as dangerous, and believers have always been portrayed as the bad guys. That's why I want you to come with me into the book of Acts tonight, as we first of all take a panoramic view of the whole book, a panoramic view of the book of Acts. Then we'll take on a pen portrait of a persecuted Christian, and then we'll finish later on with a few pointers by way of application for how does that relate to us tonight. Let's begin by this wide-angle lens as we take in a panoramic view of Acts. Throughout this book, we see the opposition to the church, and it's getting increasingly jittery. It's easy for us to forget that the events in Jerusalem that happened between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 4 only happened within a couple of months of Jesus' death and resurrection. I think we forget that. We're talking about very recent memory. This was still news. Acts is that immediate sequel to Luke's gospel. It's the what happened next to the disciples. People were still talking and speculating and wondering about Jesus. And the fact that these once terrified disciples now seem emboldened to stand up and speak out about Jesus publicly in a new, almost overwhelmingly convincing way, sent shockwaves throughout the Jewish and the Roman communities. The Pharisees, the teacher of the law, and the government officials who had all had a hand in Jesus' death cannot believe that despite killing Jesus on the cross, and burying him in a secure sealed tomb, covering up his resurrection through lying and paying hush money to the soldiers who were hearing about Jesus, and that the crowds on that great Jewish day of Pentecost were coming to faith in Jesus. And as they endeavored to silence the disciples from as early as chapter 4, they do so after the onlookers had seen the healing of the lame man interest, isn't it? In Acts 4, the healing of the lame man, that, that wee man that everybody knew, who'd sat outside the temple for years, 
And now he's walking and leaping and praising God. And the miracle's undeniable. It's in the man. The man's able to walk and leap and praise God. Where previously he just lay in front of the temple looking for money. The miracle was undeniable. The power of Jesus' name, utterly credible. But as Peter and John direct the crowds to Jesus, as not just somewhat the ability to heal, but the power to save, have a look with me at Acts chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. And we read there, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John because it was evening and put them in jail until the next day. And again, this is repeated in Acts chapter 5. The apostles performed signs and miracles. More believers meet. And look, on, if you go into the next chapter, Acts chapter 5, verse 18, the Sadducees arrested the apostles and put them in jail. They'd sternly warned them of speaking about this way and about Jesus, and so they resort to locking them up, but they would not be shut up. You see, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, there's a whole series of then jail-related stories. I didn't get a chance to do it, but maybe go home later. Count too many times the word jail is mentioned in the book of Acts. In fact, this book is made up of a whole lot of plots and imprisonments. Acts chapter 12, Peter's imprisoned, only to be led out of a miraculous escape with the gates falling open, his chains coming off. And those who had actually been praying for his release are standing there in a prayer meeting, not believing that it's actually Peter at the door whenever he goes and knocks. Their prayer is answered and Peter is free. And then, of course, there's the classic example, Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas banged up in a Philippian jail. They showed pity on a dear girl who was being abused by her owners, releasing her from her spiritual bondage. And all we know that happened that night, Elvis wasn't the first one who invented jailhouse rock. It was Paul and Silas as they sang midnight praises to their Savior. The earth shook, the chains fell off. The doors flew open, and they saved the lives of not only their fellow prisoners, but also the prison officer who had banged them up. In fact, Acts chapter 21 to 28 is an entire prison escort. Those last nine chapters are all about the prison escort of the Apostle Paul across the Roman Empire through a succession of Roman officials on his way to Rome to face the Caesar. But all along the way, he shares Christ with shipmates and inmates and magistrates. So that by the end of his time in jail, read from one of his prison letters. Let me read to you from Philippians 1, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? The gospel is now shared in Caesar's palace because Paul has been taken as a prisoner to Rome. Paul's imprisonment in Rome led to the gospel being shared in the highest places amongst the most prestigious people and the mightiest men in Europe. And if it wasn't so serious, it would be laugh out loud funny. As every time someone seeks to shut this message up or jail the message, or silence the speaker, or contain the gospel, and it spread, the good news will not be bound. It's been a while since I've been in one, but you know what it's like some of you, whenever you're in a bouncy castle and you, you press the air down here, it rises up here. And whenever you press it here, it'll come up there, and you press it, it'll pop up there, just the way the air works in it, the inflation in it. That's exactly what they're doing. 
The Pharisees, let's press down the gospel. Oh, and it pops up here. <laughs> oh, you know, the, the, the Roman soldiers, let's stop these guys spreading. Oh, and it pops up over here. Let's jail these guys. And it pops up over here. For all authority in heaven and on earth is with the risen and exalted Jesus. There was no stopping this gospel pandemic. No lockdowns or closures, rerouting or human disappointments could stop the surge. I can just imagine, imagine if you flip the scene, it's not a, not a pandemic in terms of a, a, an illness, but can't you imagine on the local news across the empire, every time the local authorities in Philippi or Ephesus or Thessalonica or Rome or Jerusalem are enforced to do a clampdown on the Christian faith, reporting how many Christians are now imprisoned, there'd be another column on the news item saying, but this is how many thousands of people have now become Christians since. That's the pattern of Acts. Lock them up, more become Christians. Kill more of them, more come to faith. The authorities from Jerusalem to Rome through these various cities that we come to know in Acts and the rest of the New Testament are jittery. So they resort to jailing the messenger, spiraling from a jealousy that people are coming to faith, that this message comes not just with words, but with transforming power, as 1 Corinthians tells us. Acts chapter 17 is a fascinating chapter too. Acts chapter 17, verse 6. I'll give you a second or two to turn to it. Acts chapter 17, verse 6. We're in the city of Thessalonica at this moment. Acts 17, verse 6. Just for this one line, it's really helpful. Acts 17, verse 6 says this. But when they did not find them, that is the apostles, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. That could almost be the, another title for, for Acts. The people who turned the world upside down. How did that group of 120 people who gathered in fear at the end of Luke's gospel after Good Friday get to Acts chapter 17 as the people who turned the world upside down? How did that happen? Two reasons. One, they had seen the risen Jesus. And two, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you are to jump back with me again, sorry for taking you back, but jumping back to Acts chapter 5, where the apostles stand before the Sanhedrin, they are utterly unafraid to declare Jesus as Savior and Lord. Look with me at what Peter says in Acts chapter 5, verses 29 to 33. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him at his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And later on we read, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put him to death. But skip down a few verses to verses 38 and 39. There was one old wise Pharisee, Gamaliel, the man who taught the young Saul, who calmed proceedings down, and he says, Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Those are powerful, wise words from someone who was not a believer. He says, if this is from God, you won't be able to stop these men. 
and you'll only find yourselves fighting against God. You haven't a hope. And from that day, those who hated the good news of salvation through Christ alone, whether religious traditionalists, ardent atheists, woke liberals, mothers, fathers, sons or daughters, husbands, wives, who hate to hear what they need to seek and find forgiveness in Jesus, who took that curse on the cross, they will find themselves fighting a losing battle. For history shows us 2,000 years later that Jesus is still building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against that church. If this had all been of the apostles' imaginations, this newfound faith in a buried prophet would have fizzled out and failed. But even tonight, this word and this truth are speaking to you and working in you and everyone who's listening here in church or at home, and you're either actively fighting it and not wanting to hear it, or you're joyfully receiving it and delighted. Either way, it's making an impact. Either you're hardening your heart against it, or you're joyfully accepting it. The world that hates this message is very jittery. The world will do all it can to contain, silence, or jail this message, lock it up and shut it out. But this world cannot contain the Christ whose word it is. And so we've had the wide-angle lens, this panoramic shot of God's people, a persecuted church. But let's take up a very brief pen portrait of one man who faced persecution in the book of Acts, known as the first martyr of the Christian faith, Stephen. Let's have our fingers in Acts 6 to 8 for a moment or two, the section that David read for us earlier. Stephen, if you have a quick look in Acts chapter 6, he's, he's arrested and he stands trial before the synagogue of freedmen. Look at Acts 6 verse 10. They could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit that given him as he spoke. Just like Jesus' trial, look at verse 13, they produce false witnesses to accuse him. And then verse 15, his face is shown to be like that of an angel, but he was accused of being one of the bad guys. Incredible, isn't it? His face shone like an angel, but he was criminalized as one of the bad guys. Step into Acts chapter 7. It's a record there of Stephen's preaching, his speech, in which he outlines that at every phase of Jewish history, God's faithful people faced hardships, rejection, persecution, even amongst their own, all the way through time, all because their hearts were hard. Their hearts were hard. They refused to obey. They became stiff-necked like stubborn mules resisting the grace of God. Look at verse 54. That is what's happening before you now, he says. And when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I find that the commentator and Presbyterian pastor, R. Kent Hughes' section on the stoning of Stephen very insightful. Just listen in to what he says. These respected, dignified aristocrats descended on the young, innocent Stephen and executed him. Their action was illegal, brutal, immoral, but they did not care. They cast great stones upon him, followed by more stones from the crowd. Frederick Buchner, who continues, describes it this way. Stoning someone to death, even somebody as young and healthy as Stephen, is not easy. You do not get the job done with just a few rocks and broken bottles. And even after you get the man down, it is a long, hot business. 
To prepare yourself for that workout, you have to be at least stripped to the waist and get somebody to keep an eye on the things where they're throwing. The man they got was the fire-breathing, young, arch-conservative Jew named Saul, who was there because he thoroughly approved of what they were doing. You ever thought why someone had to look after their clothes? It's because it was such hard work. Not just lifting wee stones that you get in the garden, but huge rocks to pummel a strong, healthy young man to death. That's why they were stripped bare. It was a full-on workout of stones as they smashed him to pieces on the ground. These weren't these men who did this, these weren't the guys who hang outside the pubs on a Friday and Saturday night when they reopen. These were the people sitting in churches and synagogues all the way around. These were the religious. But here was a man who dared to stand up and say something different, something new, something gospel, something of Jesus. He became the bad guy. Stephen lived his last day with remarkable Christ-likeness, didn't he? He died the same way. If you look at verses 59 and 60, praying for those who were killing him and giving himself into the hands of his heavenly Father. In fact, his words are so identical to what Jesus said. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Here, Stephen lived out Christ's power, the power to do and be what God wanted him to do and be. And you know, death will ultimately reveal what each of us truly is. Stephen died as he lived, looking to Christ, loving others. He stood tall through the matchless grace of God, even as his skull was being battered in. And as each stone struck him down, he preached grace to his soul. And as his body was battered, Christ was central in all he did. If we are being harassed or if we ourselves are facing hard times in life, let me ask us this question. Is it because of our gracious faith in Jesus Christ or are we just plain obnoxious? Sadly, for some Christians, we have these great martyrs or persecution complexes. We think that everyone is against us and have faces that look like we're sucking lemons as opposed to faces that reflect the radiance of Jesus Christ. Yes, we're to stand for truth, but we're not to be sour. We claim to be Christ's. We need to exhibit grace. If today were our final day, what would others write about us? Are we the bad guys, but with angel faces? And so when it comes to persecution or being the bad guys, is it worth it? Time is nearly done, and I'm nearly finished tonight, you'll be glad to know. But let me signpost two remarkable consequences of Stephen's death. Two amazing consequences of Stephen's death. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It's a small verse, but it is so much in it. Look what it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. This is Saul, who became Paul would have said so. He would have said it was worth it because the memory of dear Stephen's death was etched on his mind and his tormented soul forever to such an extent that whenever he was breathing out murderous threats 
on his way to strangle the early church in her infancy, determined with all his zealous hatred, on his way to Damascus to crush any mere talk of Christ. He heard Jesus, yes, Jesus the crucified carpenter of Nazareth, spoke to him along the road. And Acts 26, verse 14, we hear what that voice from heaven said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. He was like a stubborn beast, was Saul, that the farmer was trying to prod into better pasture land. God was goading and prodding and poking him, but Saul would not move. Saul had seen what Jesus was like. Saul had seen it in the very face of Stephen, but he had not turned to Christ. So he, Jesus had to intervene and bring Saul to his knees and blind his eyes and speak to him directly. And so God takes Saul and then he sends Paul in a completely different direction, proclaiming the glory of Jesus that he had been attacking to become the greatest life-giving missionary for the church that he previously had been killing. Paul's plan to exterminate the church was doomed to fail because he was kicking against the irresistible purposes of God. And that means by implication, even tonight, be it Roman or Jewish or British or Irish or Burmese or Indian or North Korean or Islamic governments seeking to oppose Christianity will not ultimately succeed. They won't succeed. They're doomed to failure. They're kicking against the goads. And that is seen secondly, again, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Have a look with me at Acts chapter 8, verse 1, the next little section. On that day... A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. A great persecution breaks out and scatters the people, the Christian people, all across the Roman Empire. What's the reverse of Acts chapter 8, verse 1? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Anyone know what Acts chapter 1 verse 8 tells us? Acts chapter 1 verse 8 tells us Jesus speaking to his disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 flipped on its head as Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which tells us that Jesus had already told them, you will receive the power of the Spirit to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. But you know what? The Christians in Jerusalem haven't started to do that. They'd kept the truth to themselves. They'd kept it amongst their own Jewish friends. But now, as a result of persecution, boom, they're spread. At this point in church history, the good news had gone no further than Jerusalem. The ends of the earth, never mind Samaria, seemed a long way away. But through Stephen's death, as a result of Stephen's death and this period of intense suffering, the church was forcibly scattered, thrown out of Jerusalem, distributed across the Roman Empire. Stephen's death, his blood marked the trail, sent news of a Savior in every known direction. Suddenly, if you reflect on, Philip finds himself in Samaria, funny enough, in chapter 8. Samaria, the next place, where there's a remarkable turning to Christ, and lots of Samaritans come to faith. Peter finds himself in Cornelius' house, a Gentile, in chapter 10. 
and then join the dots and follow the trail all the way to Acts chapter 11. Flick over a few pages, Acts chapter 11 to verse 19. I love this chapter, Acts 11 verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. But some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And what did they pinpoint the moment of change was? After the moment Stephen was killed, boom, they scattered. Doesn't that make you want to weep for God's gracious plan for the world? The witness and death of none of his saints is ever wasted. For here, as we land in Antioch, where a key church is established, a church that becomes absolutely central and vital to the rest of the New Testament. Antioch, the third city of the Roman Empire, a cosmopolitan melting pot where there are five different cultures, Greeks, Romans, Jews, Arabs, Persians, all lived and worked there. Antioch was evangelized, not by apostles, but by these average Christian families who were made refugees by the persecution back in Jerusalem. They were sent away for this new life, but as they went on their way, they gossiped the gospel to everybody. As God's people, we are tasked with sharing a better way, a good news story wherever we're at. In a world when anyone can now claim to be what they want or refer to themselves using any pronoun or name that they choose and where we can decide to change who we are by the surgery we have or the drugs that we take, the question is how we meet these challenges. Do we have the love and compassion and the know-how not just to tut-tut and turn the other way but present a radical gospel the gospel of love and forgiveness and acceptance that is not determined about how we feel about who we are, but reassures us whose we are in Christ. I think that as we read Acts, helps us tremendously because in Acts chapter 1 to Acts 28, the Christians were portrayed in society as the bad guys. But wherever these fugitive Christians landed, they kindled a wee fire. Sharing Christ was as natural to them as breathing. Everyday believers, empowered by God's Spirit, blew into the hearts of needy souls, even in this gorgeous city of Antioch. There were no apostles there. There were no deacons, no elders. The Lord's hand was with them. Look at Acts eleven twenty one, And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. It's there in verse 26 that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. Why? Because Christ was on their lips and his grace was written all over their lives. Christians in Antioch could thank the scattered, persecuted believers who left Jerusalem and brought them news of the Savior. The believers in Jerusalem were scattered due to the barbaric martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen received news of Christ his Lord and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament from the apostles. The apostles shared news of their crucified and risen friend Jesus actively and passionately and without fear of the authorities from the day of Pentecost onwards. You keep following it back and you keep coming back to that point. 
all coming back to Jesus' death, that crucifixion that brings eternal life, that most cruel of days that we call Good Friday. But don't ever miss God's hand in it all. That even on the very worst day, listen to me carefully, this is vital for you as a believer here tonight, that even on the very worst day this world has ever known, our God was right there in central, hanging on a cross. The authorities thought they'd nailed them, silenced them, shut them out of their lives forever. But those nails, oh, those nails, that cross, that Savior, Jesus, the only good guy who ever lived. Crucified and condemned as the biggest bad guy who ever lived. For every sin was laid on him. All through his goodness our God, our, through our badness might be wiped away. The only good guy who ever lived. Died for all the bad guys. No matter what this world does to Jesus, no matter what this world does to his followers, in violence, in persecution, or intimidation, or mockery, or condemnation, let me tell you, the truth will spread. The gospel will flourish. Jesus' church will be built. And that even through tears, one day there'll be ultimate triumph. Folks, we've got to get used to our new definition in the world. We are the bad guys to the world. But praise God, we know the truth. We know what he's done. We know who we serve. We know who wins. We know who's on the throne. It's our Lord Jesus. So that even on the very worst day, his hands are all over it. That's our God. That's our Savior. He's our friend. Mm -hmm. 